All right, and we are checking back in for the To Be Determined podcast with 2BD. And once again, we got another special guest on the episode. Now, being that we're here in the end of August, um, I kind of wanted to have a, a nice conversation on what that means, especially in terms of commemorating the celebration of Black August. Um, and this is something that me personally... Um, I hadn't learned about up until recently in my adult life, um, throughout school and all of that, and you know, for the most part, that's by design. Um, was never taught about Black August, which is a celebration of Black liberation and political prisoners and their fight towards revolution and struggle um, throughout the years. And I believe this began in the, the 70s. Um, but yeah, this is this is a huge thing, a huge concept that again didn't really learn until recently. So this is information that I also wanted to share and talk about and have a conversation with all the two BD listeners. So thank you for being here with me today, uh, Nino Brown. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I kind of just wanted to have a nice conversation with you. I know you've been experienced um, as far as reading um, revolutionary struggle, but also being engaged in revolutionary struggle. And I kind of wanted to talk about what that means, especially during this month, during this time. So um, yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Definitely glad to be here. For sure, for sure. Now, of course, always on this podcast, we start out with two questions. So to start off with, you know, what is it that you wanted to be when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, so growing up uh, in partially Jamaica and mostly in Brooklyn, um, I actually wanted to be president of the U.S., of the United States, um, all throughout, uh, you know, high school. You know, I saw just many things happen from Hurricane Katrina in middle school and then the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and just war after war from Afghanistan to Iraq. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, in order to solve these problems, you're going to need to uh, to have power, right? And the way that I was taught is that the president has all the power, right? Hmm. And, you know, up until, actually up until Obama became president, you know, that was what I wanted to be. I was like, I want to be, you know, the first black president and, you know, put on for my people, uh, rectify the, 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 the damages that have been done to my people and, you know, working class people. Um, and that was really my, my, my goal. You know, a lot of uh, teachers, I uh, had a lot of faith and thought that, <clears throat> you know, I was exceptional and, you know, I could do that. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, kind of my, my what I wanted to be up until about really up until about uh, until I started college. Okay, wow, that's a that's a those are big um, goals to set, especially from a young age. You said you paid attention a lot um, to what was going around you socially, as far as the wars and all of that. How, how do you think that kind of came into your conscious at such an early age do you think it was your upbringing yeah so my parents um you know they're 
from Jamaica and, you know, they're pretty pro-black, uh, Garveyist and, or at least, uh, in their younger years, they were more active, more conscious. Um, so, you know, we grew up in a household with, you know, black Santa Claus, black Jesus, um, pro-black politics, you know, uh, love black people, uh, period. And, uh, my mom really attribute a lot of, you know, my political instincts to her. Uh, she's always very progressive doing, you know, uh, charities and raising funds, uh, gathering clothes to, to donate and send to uh, folks back home in Jamaica. Um, but when I was in fifth grade, 9-11 happened. And, you know, I remember distinctly the shifts that took place in American culture almost overnight. I remember them, the teachers wheeling the TV into the classroom and the pandemonium that broke out in my classroom when some of my peers were thinking like, wait a minute, doesn't my, my parent work somewhere downtown in Manhattan? Hmm. And, you know, seeing the, the fear that that really caused in, in real life and people being sent home early. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is real. This is happening. This is, you know, not something that, you know, uh, it was the first like political event that I distinctly remember. And after that, I feel like I just, <clears throat> I've been paying up, paid a lot more attention. Uh, and in middle school, when Hurricane Katrina happened, you know, I did a project on it. And I remember distinctly that uh, when Kanye West said on live television that George Bush doesn't care about black people and that really resonating with me and, you know, all of the patriotic, uh, indoctrination that came after 9-11, um, which, you know, I, I saw happen in fifth grade all throughout middle school. Some of that began to fade, fade a lot of it actually began to fade away with the anti-war movement being built up. I wasn't super conscious of the anti-war movement, but I understood that people were opposed to it. Um, seeing the way that black people were treated in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina hit and, you know, I'll say this distinctly, the the, the post 9-11 uh, period, right after 9-11, I saw all these rappers and singers coming out with these like patriotic and American, pro-American songs. And then after Hurricane Katrina hit, that was flipped on his head. Uh, I remember Lil Wayne, you know, he made a song called Georgia Bush, you know, talking about how black folks are treated uh, after... Uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina, you know, devastated New Orleans and displaced, I mean, tens of thousands, if not more, uh, poor and working class people, mainly black. And, you know, from then on, I was kind of really more into like conscious, you know, hip hop, because that was the main uh, political outlet that I had. You know, I wasn't, you know, reading any revolutionary texts. I was just, you know, trying to find and listen to the most conscious uh, artists that I could. And, you know, I think those are some major factors in just kind of shaping my politics uh, at the time. And when I got to high school, by then, you know, I was going to school in Manhattan and was able to see, you know, what, uh, see what Manhattan, how Manhattan had recovered uh, or not, you know, from 9-11. Um, and the police presence was still immense, you know, so I would see, you know, folks uh, my age, my classmates, 
really just get harassed by the police after school um, and, you know, get caught up into street life and robbery, doing robberies and really just, you know, I don't want to spill too much of the beans, but really just street life broadly. And a lot of that kind of shaped how I understood uh, what it meant to be a black person, what it meant to be a working class person in this you know, country and how politics really just was so dynamic. And uh, these things actually affect affect our lives and affect our consciousness. Um, in 2007, <clears throat> towards the end of, you know, my time in high school, the uh, subprime mortgage crisis, you know, uh, occurred. Well, there, there were a crisis in, of capitalism that led to so many, I mean, probably hundreds of thousands of uh, families, if not millions, being displaced um uh, people who you know had jobs all of a sudden didn't have jobs when the economy crashed and you know my family was uh, caught up in that subprime mortgage crisis as so many black uh families and you know homeowners were and it played a profound effect in, in shaping me because i remember asking us i remember thinking distinctly like my mom you know, had two jobs. Sometimes she would work a third and, you know, have a little side hustle after side hustle. And, you know, almost everyone in my house was in, all the adults in my house were employed. Um, and I just asked myself, how many jobs do you need to work to survive in this country? Like, like, like I just, it just didn't make sense, right? Like, how many jobs do you actually need to work to survive? Because otherwise it's just, you're just working, coming home and sleeping, going back to work. And it's 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 almost slavery, um, so yeah, that was when I, all those things were kind of swirling around in my head towards the late 2000s up to 2000, well, until 2009 when I started college. And um, yeah, I would say those are the main things that I think shaped me throughout that time. Word, thank you for sharing that. Um, and then. The follow-up to that would be, what is it that you do now? What is it that you work on now and um, dedicate your time to? Yeah, so I'm a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, and I've been a member for about nine years now. Um, and, you know, I consider myself a, an organizer and popular educator. Uh, and I was teaching elementary school for the last eight years or so. Um, I taught fifth grade, first grade, um, second grade, worked in a fourth grade classroom, worked in a middle school. And, you know, uh, as an organizer, I feel like there's a lot of overlaps with education and educating. Um, and, you know, in 2014, I believe I, I joined the PSL because, you know, at that time, uh, this was Obama's second term. We saw the Ferguson Rebellion uh, and, you know, all the things that we were told, like, oh, a first black president would, would solve this. Uh, and it obviously didn't. So I joined the joined the PSL. And, uh, you know, since then, I've just been dedicating, I mean, almost every day of my life to to organizing, to, you know, trying to organize at my workplace uh, around uh, budget cuts, you know, when I was in teaching in Boston Public Schools, there were budget cuts year after year uh, where I saw, you know, coworkers 
lose their jobs and the city would deny it because according to their rationale, they would say, well, we gave the school more money this year. So, uh, you know, you guys should be, be quiet, but obviously they don't understand inflation where the money that they gave numerically, it's more, but it's worth less. So people experience cuts and we actually saw people leave. Uh, it wasn't just made up. Right. Uh, despite them, despite the city government saying that, well, we gave y'all more money, um, you know, fighting uh, the charterization and privatization of public schools, uh, but also um, I helped to start an organization, uh, Mass Action Against Police Brutality, with uh, some other friends and comrades uh, in Boston, and, you know, committed uh, years of my life to fighting uh, against police brutality in organized fashion and working with families and victims and loved ones of, uh, who've been affected by police brutality and violence, um, and, you know, carrying out political and popular education about the police and the state. Uh, and, you know, after that uh, period of time, you know, I still do that work uh, more generally, but maybe not more particularly in this in this moment. But, you know, after that, I focus more on uh, anti-war work, right, because, you know, as I said before, like 9-11 played a huge role in shaping my consciousness and seeing the subsequent just wars and terrors. And the PSL is a member of the Inter Coalition and long time has organized against war, taking, you know, unpopular stances. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that drew me to them was that they were not afraid to to say the thing that needs to be said to even if it went against the grain. Right, that the United States is lying uh, about this war in Syria, and they're lying about a war in Libya, and they have been lying. And you know, when there's when every single news media station is saying the contrary, is supporting the war narrative from the Pentagon and the White House and the military-industrial complex, uh, and everyone's being brainwashed into believing that we have to, we quote unquote, have to do something now. Uh, even though every time, every time that something turns out to be something worse. Uh, so I spent, you know, many years organizing against war with the PSL. Um, and now, uh, that's my, you know, what I do full time. Uh, I organize, uh, you know, in Boston, uh, in New York and, uh, many different places, um, to support, you know, building a revolutionary socialist movement to you know put an end to these injustices by putting working class people in power so that we can actually solve them and build a humane society you know a society where there's uh you know people are put a people on the planet are put over profit um so that's that's really uh where i'm at and what i dedicate you know i mean I'll dedicate my life to at this moment that's interesting um that you you spoke about your time uh previously working in the the public school system in Boston um because I know for someone like myself if I were to even from a young age have a teacher or mentor at that time that had anywhere near that sort of political understanding of the society around us growing up I know that would have made all the more difference in my upbringing 
Um, but, you know, as I think back to all the teachers that I had from a young age in all these different classes where we discuss all these different topics, and I was much younger than you um, during the 9-11 and all that, so I don't have that recollection or that um, analysis of what was going on at the time. But just thinking back to those times, it's like none of none of that was ever explored. We didn't talk about the deeper meanings behind all of our actions and analyzing ourselves as a country when it came to these social studies classes and all that. So I'm kind of curious um, how your interactions went during your time as a teacher um, and whether you as a teacher felt you received pushback or from the administration that you worked at, like how was it... Um, how are you able to navigate as a teacher when we know so often that um, educators, especially that have this political knowledge and understanding, are often um, pushed out um, and kind of ostracized? So I'm kind of curious how that how that time went. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I definitely think that that's a really salient point. Um, I mean, my personal experience is that. You know, the kids, the kids love it. They love, you know, I think just, I think there's maybe 2% of America's teaching, teaching uh, teachers are black men. Um, and 2%. Just, yeah, I believe it may be lower. Um, the, but the last I checked, I think it was like 2% of America's teaching population and our staff uh, are black men. So I've always been, I think just, kind of rare and when I've just been in the classroom the kids just my students orient towards me differently you know uh, they want to build a relationship with me they want to like I mean even before we even get to the academics they want to just like know about me and why I'm here and you know uh, I've been mistaken you know I've had sometimes a kid will mistakenly call me dad or something um, <laughs> And, you know, it's a, it's a very particular experience. And I think it really adds to the uh, ability or it adds to the, the the process of just teaching and educating. Um, when I worked, I worked in the, in the Bronx for a year in the middle school. And, you know, that middle school, Hunts Point Middle School was a, uh, as I was told, was a former youth juvenile facility that was then turned into a school and the youth juvenile facility was moved down the block. And a lot of the students were, you know, from the, one of the poorest districts in New York City, uh, if not the country. And, you know, I was able to relate to them even before we even got to the curriculum, because honestly, a lot of it was irrelevant. You know, uh, the social studies wasn't about their social lives or their social class or their social history, where they come from. Um, and the, the things that they would learn were maybe, you know, useful in a very narrow sense. But uh, I was always able to try to build a relationship with students by letting them know that, like, we have similar experiences, a similar upbringing. Uh, this is, you know, the hardships that you're going through are not, you know, your, your fault, right? You were born into a system, born into a country that was already messed up, right, uh, for centuries, and you're trying to make sense of it, just like all of us. Um, and 
you know, kids are, <clears throat> in my experience, I realized that the students and kids, students and young people are thirsty to know why. Why is the world that I'm navigating and living in in this particular way? Why is the climate, you know, always in catastrophe? Why are there people always being shot and killed by the police? Why are there homeless people, right? Uh, it's interesting that, you know, schools over time kind of numb students to curiosity when they should be feeding that curiosity. And, you know, there wasn't any one particular book or one particular curriculum that I could teach them or about anything, um, but really try to lead by example uh, in, you know, inquiry and just, you know, thinking about things, asking the right questions. Um, you know, I never, uh, you know, just, just pushed, you know, these are my politics. This is what I believe and you have to believe what I believe, but more so, you know, trying to do so uh, Socratically, right? And, posing questions, providing evidence and resources uh, to lead folks to, to come to their own conclusions. Um, and I think kids really appreciate that uh, when they, you know, are able to, I mean, there's nothing that feels better when a student, you know, actually I've had students who uh, I taught in fifth grade and graduated and have gone on to middle school and high school who emailed me and said, oh, you know, when we were doing this project in fifth grade, I had no idea like really what you were talking about. But now, like, actually, I see it, you know, I see the racism, I see uh, the things that we were talking about and studying. Um, and there's no better feeling than that, knowing that, you know, you're planting a seed that may one day, you know, bloom or blossom. Um, you don't know when, but, you know, uh, as long as there's, you know, other teachers, other folks, other experiences that that water that, uh, that's kind of the best solace that I have. And I never really got any pushback. Um, because like I said, I, you know, I don't, I never really came in guns blazing being like, we're going to learn about, you know, revolutionary socialism or something or communism. Right. But more so just looking at, looking at reality, the way it is looking at society, the way it is without, I mean, sugarcoating it and kids naturally see the injustice and they see that they, you know, they, when you ask them, how do you think that this could end, right? No one ever asks people that. Well, working class people are never asked, well, how do you think we can end poverty, right? Or how do you think we can end war? We're never, we're never, we're never asked these questions. Do you want to go to war with Russia or China? We're never asked these questions. You know, do you want to increase taxes on the rich or on the poor? We're never asked any of these things. Uh, when you ask the students, they, they come up with things that make total sense, humane sense. They're like, oh, how would I end hunger? Well, I see that there's lots of food that gets thrown out. Why don't we just give people food? Mm. You know, it's very basic. Um, you know, I know that there's buildings being built, you know, uh, in the downtown in these mall mall areas, and they're unoccupied. Why can't we just have people go there, right? Mm. <clears throat> so uh, I've never really experienced a lot of pushback. Um, if anything, you know, uh, I just try to teach things the way they are. Uh, you don't need to say socialism, communism, revolution, any of these things. I think just when presented with the objective facts and a little bit of history and some, you know, curiosity and inquiry, you know, kids, uh, young people are drawn to, you know, what actually would be the conclusions of socialists. That's such a, a good point that you make about students and about young people when you ask them 
these questions or how to fix these issues around our society that, you know, prior to the point where they're just, there's so much information that's fed to them and they learn how we quote unquote run our society, um, that they just, they give these answers that are really based in reality rather than um, the hoops um, of legislation and red tape that we've installed to prevent any sort of real change happening in this country. So if you ask them, how do we, how do you, how do we fix food insecurity or make sure that everyone eats? And the general response is, you know, we have all this food that we throw away. Why don't we just give that to them? And they have, they have our understanding of our society from a point that it's like, this is our society and we've established it. So we have the ability to say, to change this and to do that, how things, essentially how you would think a society that's based around people would be rather than one that's based around legislation, red tape, and you know, um, not being able to have your voice heard and make a decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really common sense uh, approaches. You know, people are hungry. We should feed them. People are unhoused. We should give them shelter, right? People uh, need help, are sick. Give them health care, right? We don't have any hospitals. Why can't we just build more, right? All these questions come down to power, and it really just demonstrates that, you know, we kind of have to be, we are brainwashed by a capitalist system, right, uh, that dehumanizes us that alienates us from ourselves and our community and just kind of basic common sense, humane thinking. Um, and, you know, being a teacher, you kind of see it over time, right? You see how, uh, you know, if anything, sometimes the students might push back after they get older, you know, and say, well, shouldn't they have to pay for this? And, you know, that's, that's something that's introduced later, uh, you know, by the system that p pushes the idea that everything uh, that is worth anything is has to be a commodity, has to be mm -hmm. bought and sold, right? If you can't buy and sell it, then it's useless. And that's not, you know, some natural thinking, right? In fact, it shows capitalism is against human nature. Um, so, yeah, I definitely uh, agree. Right. That's not something we come across in our upbringings until it's forced onto us. Um, now, in the spirit of Black August, um, you've spoken a little bit about your time um, organizing and working with community members to save the Asada Shakur and Guillermo Morales um, Community Center at um, City College in New York. Um, would you want to kind of detail a little bit about what that fight was like and kind of how that um how that came to be yeah so the center um was established uh before i mean before i was uh active way before i was active um it was actually one through struggle um uh, in 2013 i graduated college moved back to to, to new york city to brooklyn and you know, I worked in the Bronx uh, and got involved with a group of young people uh, who attended City University 
um, or friends of the city of city university or, or students who went there. And, you know, the mayor at the time, uh, mayor Bloomberg, he, uh, you know, led a hostile takeover of the center, uh, and tried to turn it into this, you know, pro bourgeois, pro capitalist, uh, uh, center. Right. Previously, it was a food share. You know, there were food shares being done out of there, um, book swaps because the high prices of books. Uh, it was a safe space for LGBTQ people. Uh, it was open to community members to use as well. Um, and I think it was in October, uh, you know, the in, in literally in, the, in just a, a single week, uh, all of the student possessions, uh, everything in the center was just cleared out overnight without any, any warning. And uh, the students, you know, issued statements, uh, which, you know, were important, but they, what was more important was that they got organized, you know, holding sit-ins and protests outside of the city college. And at the time, you know, I was uh, becoming more political and I met someone from the uh, People Power Movement, which was a, a student and youth movement, uh, working class movement, uh, it's kind of populist uh, to, you know, defend and intervene because, I mean, some of these folks actually went to the school and experienced this, you know, immense loss and, you know, as a community loss because it was not just a student center it was the Asasha Corin Guillermo Morales Student and Community Center. Uh, and, you know, Asasha Cor was exiled in Cuba. Uh, and Guillermo Morales, a Puerto Rican uh, liberation fighter. You know, these were folks that, uh, you know, we wanted to honor for their, their sacrifices to the struggle. And it was clear that the center was a political problem for the administration. And for the, uh, you know, the city, the ruling class of the city, because, you know, students would go there to become unalienated, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there were survival programs that operated out of, the, out of the center. And, you know, people, that, that was dangerous, right? Uh, ever since, you know, 1989, when the center uh, started, uh, organizations whether it was the jericho movement the black student union uh people power movement you know uh lgbtq groups i mean it was really like a social movement space where uh, the progressive you know broad broadly putting progressive left uh social justice minded groups could actually have a base of operation or home um and when i got involved the center had already been, you know, taken over. Uh, and, you know, it was the period of how do we fight to win it, to win it back now? There were students, I think there were the CUNY 5 or CUNY 6, uh, who, you know, led these protests against uh, General Death Squad David Petraeus. We call him General Death Squad David Petraeus because uh, he was, you know, a militarist who, you know, uh, just was responsible for so many deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan and all throughout the Middle East. And uh, they protested him very militantly and, you know, led to their arrest. 
and you know persecution and that only increased the the level of struggle it only made people want to turn out even more uh so when i got involved things were already in motion and you know the role that i played was mainly through the ppm uh people power movement um in trying to you know do outreach and build the united front with all the other groups um <clears throat> to win the center back and that's where i met the the psl uh other folks in the broad you know socialist and communist movement and really uh began to identify more strongly with you know that movement previously you know i studied the black panthers and you know it was more uh abstract in a sense you know um i kind of came to those politics out of the concrete experiences of my life but you know i wasn't i wasn't in a group uh, i didn't really know what being in a socialist organization or party meant um and in practice i kind of saw the psl play a very mature and serious role in you know helping to mediate conflicts to uh present you know uh, progressive solutions and even opening up their their office space uh to the displaced students to uh, organize out of right to hold their meetings because now they you know didn't have a center and you know there's really so many there's too many people that could they couldn't fit in someone's you know living room floor right um, all right so yeah all that was happening in 2013 and it just played a really catalyzing role in you know making me see the importance of organization uh i mean we did not win the center back mayor bloomberg you know was successful in taking over the center and turning it into his pro-bourgeois so-called career development you know resume writing workshop he could have you know chosen any other place on campus to do it but he chose there because of the politics right this was seen as a harbinger as a hub for revolutionary radical progressive activity um and and yeah i mean <clears throat> i think long story short uh the center you know we did not win it back but the i think the, the struggle uh really you know brought together so many folks uh, who, you know, at times maybe were friendly and worked together, uh, but really unified them into uh, a united front uh, and, you know, taught them how to uh, to organize against, you know, a class enemy, how to, you know, uh, uh, summarize lessons from the struggle. Because, I mean, there are many lessons from, you know, the anti-war aspect with General Death Squad, David Petraeus, now, you know, teaching at the college and the need to uh, not, you know, allow these these war criminals who are responsible for the deaths of millions of Iraqis and Afghan uh, Afghani folks uh, to just waltz onto our campuses as if they are not responsible for, you know, war crimes, and we're we're not supposed to we're not supposed to bat an eye like, you know, that was important, uh, but also. Uh, the main lesson being how do we build unity you know there were divisions and intern assigned beefs you know Trotskyists versus liberals liberals versus radicals versus Maoists. um and you know how do we actually build a united front was a question that i saw play out in real life um so you know despite the you know 
we didn't win the center back. Uh, all of those folks, I think, have been impacted by that fight. I know I've been impacted by that fight, and it's left an indelible mark on, on my consciousness um, as a, a you know as a revolutionary today. That's interesting. Um, that's interesting to hear you had that experience with all those different um, leftist groups um, and were able to kind of see a united collective kind of come for come together for something, um, especially early on um, in your in your organizing days. Um, I'm kind of I'm curious as to you said that the center had been around since the since about 19 the late 1980s yeah really 1989 1990 okay um what was the rationale for just abruptly kind of taking it over and turning it into a career development center was it um this was specifically like spearheaded by Bloomberg's administration um, so yeah, this was uh, under Bloomberg's administration, and you know, City College said that uh, you know the the space being shut down had nothing to do with you know protesting uh, David, you know, General Death Squad David Petraeus, um, which you know we disagree. Uh, the students who you know led the protest against his presence on the campus, uh, you know, they kind of were schooled through that center. Uh, and through that space. Um, so <clears throat> we saw it as a political attack on the entire move, you know, the, the entire left movement there. Whatever rationale they gave that it was unrelated, uh, you know, just really did not hold water, right? Because university is such a big campus, they could have literally used any other room, any other space. Uh, but they chose this space because of the type of people that it was producing. It was producing more radical, progressive-minded folks who saw the importance of, you know, not just uh, getting an education, uh, but using that education to serve the community, to serve the working class, uh, and to, you know, for progressive uh, causes and uh, struggles. So, yeah, we see it as a uh, as class warfare, right? The The real threat was the fact that the center was a site of transformation. People were uh, not just going there to hang out, but they were going there to build community, to build consciousness. Uh, and, you know, given the name of the center, uh, the politics, you know, this was a time when uh, Asada Shakur herself, right, the bounty on her head was increased from $1 million to $2 million, right? Um, so clearly, you know, in a general context, there's a political thrust to attack all things Asada Shakur. Um, and I, I forget which year this was, but, uh, you know, the PSL actually ran Asada Shakur. You know, I mean, obviously she's, she's in exile in Cuba, but uh, we had a, uh, a campaign uh, in 2000, you know, the same, in the same month in October. Uh, you know, where we ran Asada Shakur for, you know, mayor. We asked folks to, we asked New York City folks to write her in uh, for the mayoral campaign. 
um, to raise, you know, the, her profile and let folks know that, you know, hands off Asada. We need to stop targeting her. Uh, you know, she is a New Yorker. She's a CUNY graduate. Uh, and, you know, she, you know, she deserves to be free, you know, uh, be with her family uh, here. Um, I know she's, you know, safe in Cuba, but uh, ultimately we want her to be able to be reunited uh, with her family here. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the gist of it. Yeah, of course, the, the story of Asada Shakur is is such an is such an interesting one um, because of the way that she was continually targeted and acquitted. And it's it's such a clear example of of targeting by the state. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, since the the fight to save the center, um, has there been sort of another space, um, or um, place that has sort of popped up in its place as far as revolutionary activity and as far as students being able to express these ideas and also have a safe space safe space for um these vulnerable students that previously utilized it i know personally um the colleges that i went to there was not even close to um an entity where we could um have these conversations exchange these ideas but also um work to support anyone in need in that way yeah so um there's a space in harlem that i mean it wasn't you know directly flowing from the shutdown of the center there's a there's a space in harlem the justice center in el barrio uh it is a uh it's a social justice you know community organizing space um and it's you know home to about five organizations Five organizations, I think the PSL is one of them, Anti-Coalition, uh, Revolutionary Fitness, um, and I forget the other two, but, you know, they do regular programming, uh, community forums, book clubs, film screenings, uh, you know, free and, you know, low-cost fitness, uh, open mics, uh, many things, you know, to, to organize working-class people around their own interests and around their needs, and uh, uh, it's right in... in in Harlem, Spanish Harlem, 116th Street. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of sad to say that it's it's actually now it's moving. Um, so, you know, folks are packing up and, you know, relocating to a different space. Uh, but, you know, from, I forget when it was opened up, maybe 2014, it hasn't been open for super long. I like more hasn't been open for as long as the Asada Shakur and Guillermo Morales Student Center. It's not that long, mm-hmm. but um, at least the last five to ten years, five to it's twenty twenty two. I mean, yeah, in the last like five to ten years, it's been active, and it's still going to be active. It's just relocating uh, to a different uh, place in the city because you know the rents are really crazy, and trying to find, you know, uh, just not exploitative you know horrible landlords that actually are gonna 
upkeep the property, what have you. Uh, it's tough. Um, but the work, you know, is going to continue uh, just in a different place. Um, so that's kind of uh, the main space that I, I would say in the city that I have seen, you know, try to play that that role um, that the Asada Shakur and Guillermo well, the student center did, student, student and community center did, uh, is the Justice Center in the Barrio. Most definitely. Um, but yeah, I want to, I want to thank you for your time being here, uh, Nino. Um, is there anything you kind of wanted to add to the listeners out there? Um, what they can, if you want to let them know what they keep in, keep in mind for Black August as it comes around annually or anything that you want to amplify that you're working on or anything you want to say to the people? Um, I mean, yeah, you know, Black August is a, a month to commemorate our fallen freedom fighters, but also to remember the people who are behind bars, uh, who, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, you know, who, you know, really put their skin in the game, most notably, uh, Matulu Shakur, who, you know, is Tupac Shakur's stepfather, uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur, I should say. Uh, he is a acupuncturist. Um, it was framed by the U.S. government uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, you know, <clears throat> they framed him on so-called RICO charges to, you know, racketeer and conspire against the government, so-called, allegedly. Um, we know this to be, you know, complete farce. His co-defendants, uh, you know, other white co-defendants, were given compassionate release. Uh, and he's the only one that's left behind bars. Uh, and right now he has uh, bone marrow cancer, uh, advanced stage bone marrow cancer, and was given six months to live. Uh, maybe it's five or four now. And, you know, this is a brother who, uh, you know, during the, the radical 70s, um, and even, you know, prior to, uh, you know, dedicated his life to serving his community. And through acupuncture, he was able to, you know, get people off of heroin and methadone and all types of drugs and turn their lives around. Uh, and, you know, he's actually healed more people than, you know, uh, you know, the government alleges that he's a killer and alleges that he's harmed people. But he wasn't even in he wasn't even in the state uh, of the crime that he was being alleged to do at the time. Right. He's just completely false fabrication, complete fabrication. Um, he's a doctor, he's a healer and he's dying and he needs our help. Um, so go to, you know, Matulu Shakur, free Matulu Shakur, or go to the Jericho movement.com. Uh, that's the Jericho movement.com to find out more about Matulu Shakur and many other political prisoners. Um, I organize with them. Uh, and, you know, I always say, you know, folks, you know, we have more in common with each other than we do with the ruling class parasites, you know, in Washington. Uh, everyone in Washington is a millionaire. And we're not talking about one million, two million. Literally, the people that rule our government make our laws in the Senate and the Congress. They are multimillionaires, right? We're literally ruled by the rich. And they have their own party. You know, they have the Democratic Party and the Republican Party which will never be a party that goes against, you know, private capitalist property. Uh, so we need our own party. 
party of the majority, party of the poor and working class people uh, all across this country. Um, and that's, you know, the party that I'm trying to build is the PSL. So if you're interested in, uh, you know, building a party of the working class, for the working class, uh, for revolution, for socialism, uh, check out pslweb.org and, you know, read our program, our socialist program, uh, you know, and if you agree with it, um, you know, apply and hopefully, you know, can join the join the party and build towards revolution in our lifetime because it's uh, sorely needed. The conditions for revolution are ripe, gone rotten. You know, we're kind of seeing that that rottenness and decay today. Um, so like the Panther said, man, you can either get down or you can lay down. You can move, move aside and move on over. And, um, you know, we only get where we're organized to take. So uh, I'll just end it with that. We only get what we're organized to take. Thank you again, Nino, for being here on the 2BD podcast. And to all the listeners out there, what comes next, as always, is to be determined. Peace.